You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. You know, sometimes when you read your introductory remarks, you think, you know, that is really, really true. And sparking important conversations is exactly what we're going to do today, because talking about money can be awkward, but talking about death can be really, really awkward. And talking about them both in the same conversation don't even get me started. That's why we invited Rebecca Sofer and Gabby Berkner, founders and authors of the website and the new book, Modern Loss, Candid Conversation About Grief. Beginners, welcome in to talk to us today. I'm sure you've heard about this book because it is really getting a lot of buzz. Rebecca, Gabby, welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Jean. Thanks for coming in. We're glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you both here, and I'm glad you wrote this. Before we jump into your personal stories, which are both devastating, and the why, I do want to tell everybody, when you're talking about loss, you're not just talking about death, right? Absolutely. Loss is, you know, death is death. Death is end of life. It's illness, or it's whatever caused someone to no longer live. Loss is what happens to the person left behind, the person left above ground, and everybody else who knew and cared about that person. That's loss. Death is an instant. Loss is a forever thing. And loss doesn't just have to be about death. Loss can be loss of a friend, loss of a relationship, loss of a marriage. I mean, I was thinking about Mm -hmm. the many times during my life that I've grieved for things, and Mm -hmm. they didn't always involve a person dying. That's absolutely true. There are many valid, terrible types of loss, yet our sight And the book actually focuses on loss from a physical death. Um, We get a bunch of pitches through our site. We get dozens of pitches a week for our website, modernloss.com. And occasionally people will say, I had this abusive relationship. I'm estranged from my parents. Um, They're grieving something that doesn't result from a physical death. Our site and our book and our mission is really about living with loss after losing someone you love, be it a spouse, a sibling, a child, a friend, a Anyone. Uh, pregnancy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone Someone you had a complicated relationship impact. with, yeah. right. Anyone who impacted your life. Well, Rebecca, let's start with you. I mean, you found yourself without both your parents in your early 30s. What I happened? Did. Well, um, you know, I was trucking along in life, living in New York City, working in daily TV at the Colbert Report and on a very specific track, like a very exciting goal that I was trying to attain. Um, and then when I was 30, I was on my way home from a family vacation and dropped off by my parents, who then continued back on to Philadelphia, where my hometown. And uh, my mom was killed in a car accident about 45 minutes after we gave each other a hug and kiss. Yes. Um, I'm so sorry. Thank you. It was terrible. My dad was in the car with her. He survived. And, you know, but that was like a whole 
unexpected chapter in my life that that began, which is like a very long chapter, which is, you know, living the rest of my days without my mom and losing her in the way I did and knowing that she'd never meet anybody important who would come into my life ever again and they'd never get to meet her. Um and it was incredibly isolating because I was 30. I was working full time. I was working in daily TV, which you know full well is a grind. And I just, you know, didn't have a lot of structures in place to support me. I mean, I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of family. I, you know, I'm a very like happy, you know, person who has a full life. But when something like this happens to you, especially when you're younger mm-hmm. and everyone else is focused on building, building, building their lives, and you are too, and you're also focused on losing, people don't know how to deal with you. They like really don't know what box to put you in. And it was very, very, very hard. And then three years later, my dad died from a heart attack. So within three and a half years, um, I lost both my parents. I was I was a literal orphan. And it just was so out of body and so surreal and so disconcerting and just, it just, I, it untethered me from everything I had ever known. Yeah, I I totally under. I mean, I've lost one parent. I was a little bit older. I'm sorry. Um, thank you. And it is true that people just don't know what to say. But I want I want to come back to that in a second. Gabby, you were younger. You were 24. I was 24 when I was in the newsroom. Rebecca was working in political comedy and television. I was working writing obituaries for a local newspaper because you really can't make this stuff up. Um, I get a call that my mom is downstairs, and I go downstairs, and she says, I have the worst news you're ever going to hear. And I, that, at that moment, I knew exactly that it was my dad. I was 24 years old. I didn't yet have any children. I wasn't married. I don't have any siblings. My mom was standing right in front of me. This right. was obviously going to be about my dad. I don't know what I expected in that moment, but something in the realm of normal horrible, not what I heard next, which was they were murdered. And the they was my father, who was very close to my entire life, and my stepmother, who helped raise me from the time I was seven years old. They had been murdered in a home invasion by someone who had been sent by a local plumbing company to do work on their home. Unbelievable. And again, I'm so sorry. I mean, that's awful. Thank you so much. How do you cope? I I coped in a couple ways thanks to some really good advice that two people gave me that sounds like paradoxical advice. My friend Molly, when I was telling her I'm feeling so unproductive, I can't write, I'm a journalist, I am tired all the time, I'm, I feel just unfocused, and she said, don't expect too much from yourself. She said, every morning you get up and brush your teeth, you can feel proud of yourself for doing that. Uh, Everything else, conditioner and bills and laundry, it's all icing. And my grandmother said to me, and my grandmother is my father's mother who had just lost her son in a murder, said, don't expect too little of yourself. And she really gave me permission to still be myself, to still be ambitious. So those two pieces of advice really did help me cope because it let me go easy on myself when I needed to and also put my foot on the pedal when I wanted to. How did the two of you come together to write this book and and why did you decide to write it? Well, so originally, Modern Loss, which is now this 
incredible book that we get to hold in our hands, which is still a surreal thing for both of us. Modern Loss was launched originally as a website, which has now published hundreds of personal essays and how-tos and helpful pieces and cartoons, um, and that's a bit more than four years old. Gabby and I met at a dinner, and we had both lost a parent and bonded very quickly over that. And at that time, we were still kind of spinning our wheels in terms of, you know, trying to gain traction with a real support system. Gabby was slowly building one. I was definitely in the earlier days of my loss. I think my mom had been dead for like six months, and I remember at that and that night I was like telling her, I'm like, just something is terribly wrong with me that like I'm just not fully functional. It's been six months. And everyone in the room was like, it's literally been six months and kind of just saying, that's a blip. You right. Know? And so we started talking and, you know, in my extreme isolation, um, you know, I'm an only child between my my two parents. I just had very few people I could really let it all hang out to in terms of what I was really going through. I felt Like, I couldn't really be myself in terms of, you know, a happy person who likes laughing. I mean, I worked in political comedy. I really enjoy laughing, and I would find all these ludicrous aspects of what it's like to live with loss, but I felt like the world didn't really want me to express that because it wasn't respectful or, you know, just I was supposed to be very sanctimonious about all of it. But I was a 30-year-old woman who worked for freaking Comedy Central. Like, that's just not the way (laughs) I deal. I don't deal through platitudes. I don't cope through, you know, um, soft filters and pastels or, you know, just I don't automatically go to religion to feel like I'm having a resonant experience. What I really needed was storytelling. I needed storytelling that was body and real and candid and funny and, you know, ugly about every type of thing that comes out of loss and not just in the first year, but any any point in time, I mean, loss provides endless, endless triggers. It's like the IHOP bottomless pot of coffee for the rest of your life. At the same time, I wanted to read stories that were about resilience, that were about hope, that were going to assure me that life was not all said and done at the age of 30. And so Gabby and I, after a few years when we were both very sure that this was not going to be our personal therapy project, we launched Modern Loss at the end of 2013. And to that exact end, which is to provide very candid conversation about a variety of aspects of loss. And the book, four years later now, is an extension of the site in the sense that we called different themes that we kept seeing repeating over and over and over again in our stories that we run, and we wanted to go deeper into each of those themes and also write more of our own stories because what we don't do on the site is really, we don't have bylines. Like we're just, we're running it, but Mm -hmm. we're not writing for it. You know, one of the themes that comes up when we talk about loss is money. (laughs) It comes up again and again and again. And I'm researching right now a new book on women and money and talking to hundreds of women around the country and the women who write into this podcast. And I hear a lot of stories that mix money with a time of loss, with my husband died, my father died, I got this inheritance, I'm really mixed about it. What do you hear on the site? What did you hear as you were working on the book? And and how do you think about it, Gabby? Well, we define inheritance pretty widely on the site and in the book um, to include certainly money, also lack of it, sometimes debt, um, 
belongings, genetics, mm-hmm. everything that you might inherit from someone. And it's always complicated. And especially when you deal with money, there's complications that stem from receiving money, especially when you're a younger person who's lost someone. And this might have the any kind of windfall, whether it's small or larger, um, will it can enable you to do something that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Well, I mean, I know your personal experience was being thrown immediately into the financial soup. And I, I could understand that because it happened to me. I mean, when my father died, I went from the hospital to the funeral home because my parents had had this crazy bet hmm. that involved him not really wanting to be buried with her family and her not really oh wanting God. to be buried with his family. And so they decided that whoever died first would win. And wow. they never bought cemetery plots as a result. That and so twisted is, <laughs> is a really good word for it. So as a result, I went from the funeral home with my aunt to the cemetery or from the hospital to the cemetery or the funeral home. I actually can't even remember. I just know I was in some office with caskets and <laughs> and bought a plot and mm-hmm. picked out all the stuff. And you had to do this in in duplicate. Yeah, I, I, I did. Um, and what my experience has, one of the things my experience showed me was the importance of having a good and trustworthy uh, executor. Because I really wouldn't have been able to, like, in my deep, who wasn't grieving in the way that I was, I wouldn't have been able to do a lot of this stuff without his support. And he was a friend of my father and stepmother and was certainly grieving in the aftermath, but not in a way that made it impossible for him to do this especially complicated work of everything from paying to have a crime scene cleaned up to closing down a business, a thriving business. Um, And, you know, it took years. And I'm just so grateful that I had that support throughout the years-long process while I was grieving. The closing of that business left you with some significant money. And you said the money felt loaded. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say... It was a significant. It was significant to me as a journalist who was making, I think, thirty three thousand uh, dollars. Oh my God! Lucky you! I got <laughs> yeah. out of college and made eleven five. So okay. there you go. You can feel good about that. Okay. Yeah. I was in a. I was in the newspaper guild, and I think that was my salary at the time. And what it enabled me to do was to buy a house, which really enabled me to restart my life. I was feeling very exposed at the time. Obviously, this happened to my father and stepmother in Sedona, Arizona, in their own home. And here I was living in a literally 200-square-foot walk-up with a kitchenette that didn't work. My books were in the oven because I didn't use that oven. And it enabled me to buy an apartment. And that felt complicated in a way that was like, is this my home? Is this theirs? And how do I explain to people how a journalist making, you know, $33,000 a year has an apartment, which was not a fancy apartment. It was an 800-square-foot apartment, but yet I wouldn't have been able to have purchased it without that money. How'd you wrap your hands around that? I mean, I guess I think about what 
what my dad would have wanted from me and how significant a step feeling safe in my own body, in my own home, in the aftermath of such an enormous tragedy, the benefit of that, I felt like he would have felt that it was worth it to have a home base and to start anew with the with the new home that I had purchased thanks to makes a lot the money of sense, that he left me. I think yeah. absolutely in light of in light of what happened Rebecca I want to hear a little bit about your financial story but first I want to remind everybody that conversations like this are brought to you by Fidelity Investments because together our aim is to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat. And that means, yes, knowing what you owe and what you own and how to reach your goals and having an annual financial checkup. But it also means having important conversations like these with the people that you love, with your parents, with your children, about what we want our legacies to be. Legacies are not just for Warren Buffett. Legacies Mm -hmm. are for every single one of us. And Fidelity has a lot of resources to help. You can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Rebecca Sofer and Gabby Berkner, authors of Modern Loss, which is now a book in addition to a website. How was it for you dealing financially? Well, um, yeah, it was really hard. So my mom my mom died. No one really thought my mom would die before my dad. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Nobody ever does, but Yeah, the way. no, like the joke is always on you. And like for any listeners, that should be just the mantra that you carry with you from this conversation is that the joke is always going to be on you. So it's probably good to just assume that the opposite of what you assume will happen is going to happen and prepare for it. And it's not that hard to prepare for um, because my mom did not have a really detailed will. Did she have a will at all? She did have a will. It was very generic, and it basically left everything to my dad. Because, again, we just thought my dad was older than she was. He had had some health issues. He'd had a bout of cancer. You know, we thought, well, dad is, you know, like— Dad will probably go first. Um, I wasn't involved in their conversations about wills. Again, I was 30 when she died. I was busy building a life. I didn't really, you know, stop myself at age 27 to think, I should really have a talk about them. Like, what's their? what are their plans? What are their hopes and dreams for their legacies? And I wish I had, but I hadn't. And that's, we're trying to spread the gospel now of like, please do that. And it can actually be a conversation held over a couple drinks. It doesn't have to be that, you know, Heavy ominous, duty, you know? yeah. Um, so I, I found myself with everything going to my dad, with whom I was extremely close. I mean, my parents were married. They were completely in love. I loved them dearly. However, my dad has children from a previous marriage. And so, to put it bluntly, when everything from one parent who is not the parent of other people goes to another parent who is the parent of other people, that gets very dicey because then my father died and— Everything was in the same pot. And so we were faced with pulling the threads out of this jumbled mess that had become just a will and trust nightmare. And again, I'm not talking about dynasty money. I'm just talking about any inheritance that you're faced with. When you combine emotions with money, <laughs> it's going to get messy. Good things do not happen. No, right. and like and luckily it <laughs> yeah. wasn't, you know, there were no big fights. There was no explosion that said 
It always comes down to grandma's rocking chair, you know, and like that's what I found time and again, which was for me the initial, those first several months of going through the estate process um, with my half-siblings were more about the items that carried emotional weight. And some of those items carried the same emotional weight for more than one of us. So it was very, very tricky to wade through all of it. Now, on the financial side, the, you know, my dad always said, money doesn't care who owns it. But when you have a dead parent or a dead somebody who leaves behind some money and you're the one who gets some of it, even if it's, and we're talking $100 to a million dollars, you you care. You're you're emotional about it. You it may not care about you know you being the owner, but you sure as hell care about the fact that you're the owner and you are highly aware of where it came from. And so I think that in that first year, you know, I know Gabby bought her her apartment. I was terrified to do anything. I I was very scared that you know if I made a mistake with some of this money that. That was it. It was almost like saying goodbye again mm. to my parents in a way that, like, you know, this was them taking care of me in a way that they hadn't planned to at this age for me. And it was very, very hard for me to spend even a penny of it. It was I was petrified. Well, often, and I know you talked with financial therapists for your book, the advice is don't do anything. Exactly. The advice is, is yeah. do do nothing it for is. six to 12 months mm-hmm. until the emotion can shake out. I was listening to you talk about the belongings and thinking about, I've heard that families have systems where everybody picks an order. Mm-hmm. They they draw, a, mm-hmm. you know, they draw a number <laughs> and then there's a lottery there, and they go around. There was and it's color like, coding involved. It's, <laughs> there. It's, it's like rotisserie baseball. But are there things that you all would recommend now to people who are going to go through this tomorrow, next month, next year, not just financially, but what what are your what are your your big takeaways and also for all of us who are faced with having to say something when something really bad happens to somebody else, are there any right words? Well, I think with regards to your first question, um, what what are our takeaways? Like, what would we advise other people? I think we've just learned through our own personal experiences and those of the many people who have shared their stories with us time and again that the real takeaway is talk about it now. Mm-hmm. Talk about it while everyone's healthy. Talk about it when you're just like hanging out on a Tuesday night with your parents, you know, and, you, and there's no agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, when everyone's healthy, when everyone's just like relaxed because— it's so much harder when that person is gone unless there are explicit instructions, unless there's a specific roadmap, blueprint that they leave behind, a step-by-step, you know, instructional guide, which very few people do. It gets messy because not only are you, like, is that person forcing you to deal with other dynamics of other family members who are also grieving? Right. So you're not only, you know, are you trying to come up with, you're guessing what that person would have wanted, then you're trying to project your emotional, you know, state onto those answers saying, you know, and then you're also taking into consideration whatever the dynamic is between you and the other people you're dealing with. And that is a mess. That's that's a real mess, and that's a danger zone because it's easy for people to say, well, Dad would have wanted this. Well, what do they know, you know? Right. And also what we've learned, and this happened to me, and it was not pretty. I love my dad very much, but he kind of wanted to keep the peace while he was alive. I mean, there was no, you know, war. My dad, I think, was 
a little bit um, conflict-averse with dealing with this stuff. And so after my mom died, he said one day, he's like, you know, what is really important to you? And I was like, well, do we, like, take a tour of your condo? (laughs) And I pointed out, and he's like, yeah. And I did because there were certain items that I really identified as, like, this is where my mom sat in this chair when she was pregnant with me, and we reupholstered it together. And, like, this is so meaningful. And I, we actually, like, itemized. It was so, it felt very morose, but it also felt like, ah, I've had this conversation now. I feel so much better. It's not weighing on me anymore. However, when he died, when we went through his will, it turns out that some of those items had actually been promised to a couple of us while he was alive. And we were tasked with, because it wasn't in writing, figuring out who got what. And let me tell you, it was not a fun process. And luckily, it wasn't an ugly process. But because we were grieving, it's hard. Like, it's insulting to do that to somebody who you love. And so that's just talk about it now. It doesn't take long. My father and stepmother were living their lives in Sedona, Arizona, where we never expected this kind of thing to happen. And yet, I am so amazed and in awe of how strangely prepared they were to die. They did have those specific instructions in a way that, you know, we hear so many stories about the aftermath of loss and the intersection of money and financial issues. And I feel like very few people have that luxury, if you could call it a luxury. And so having that roadmap enabled us when we were actually going through the things. My stepmother was one of 13 children. Four of her sisters came in and um, a really close friend of mine who did such a mitzvah, in, for lack of a better word, came in to, to help me uh, sort through this stuff. And that actually, in the house where this happened, And because we had this roadmap, because we knew their wishes and, you know, there was some stuff promised to each of us and then there was a a matter of, you know, who wants this, who wants that, because we felt we knew their wishes, actually sorting through the stuff and giving it out to the different, my stepmother's different siblings and to me, to my father's brother, it was actually an amazingly healing process because we had that roadmap in front of us. That's fantastic. All right, last words. What do we say? What do you say? So people say a lot of thoughtless and dismissive things, not out of malice, very rarely out of malice, because it's really hard to know what to say to people. I always say that showing up, following up, following through is way more important than saying the exact right thing, but here are some things you can say. If it's appropriate, like I wouldn't recommend it in the workplace, but you can say, I love you. You can say whatever you are feeling is okay. You can invite the person to speak the name of their loved one who died and and share stories about that person, as well as if you knew that person to share stories, especially in writing, especially in like a handwritten note. Um, I have a whole legal file of the note, the handwritten notes, and this was, you know, a year So before Facebook, so, you know, I don't know if I would have gotten them today, but I cherish them and I read them once a year around the anniversary of their death. Wow. I think that also important is, you know, the ability to say nothing um, and feel comfortable with the Mm. silence. I feel like sometimes people don't want to speak and sometimes they just want someone's presence. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to have the answers or the assurances They, they because they don't believe you anyway. I think that there's a lot of power in showing up, <laughs> hanging out, 
and just being willing to, you know, watch bad TV or go out for a drink and talk about really silly things. At the same time, I think that there's a lot of power also in saying this is awful and in and be colorful in your language like the best thing that anyone said to me after my mom died was a one of my good friends from graduate school from journalism school emailed me and I won't say it because it's like full of obscenities um <laughs> in this interview but he said this is you know bleep 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 bs your mom was amazing this is just total bs and that's exactly what i needed in that moment which was someone to actually make me realize that they were feeling the rage and they were feeling the disbelief and the sadness and the shock that I was. Of course, not to the extent that I was, but I felt so alone and I felt so in need of somebody just to get into this darkness with me for a couple minutes. They didn't have to stay in there forever, but even just for a couple minutes, it made me feel seen And, like, I wasn't as crazy as I thought I was going. Rebecca Sofer, Gabby Berkner, the book is Modern Loss. Thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for having it on a continuing basis. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. And we'll be right back. Kelly has joined me in the studio. That was a really, like, I'm I'm sort of spinning from mm-hmm. that conversation because there's so many other questions that I would have wanted to ask we them. We could have talked to them for hours, I think. It yeah. was really powerful and really important. And I was thinking about, so it wasn't the same kind of loss as, as a death as somebody, but um, when Jake was born and he had... A heart condition and it was serious and we had to deal with it. I was thinking about the things people said to me that really felt like the right things to say mm-hmm. and the things that felt like the wrong things to say. The people who said, God only gives you what you could handle, I wanted to throw yeah. across the room. Yeah, or and everything happens for a reason. Or I know, yeah. I know. The, I, I, think, I think Rebecca was right. I mean, the one person that I just really remember basically said exactly the same thing that her friend said, which is, I'm so effing sorry that this is happening in your life right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it like the anger. The it, anger. It's just yep. what you need to feel. Yep. I, I mean, I guess, depending on who you are and where you are. And and they're right that it, it you do sometimes just need to show up. And even those people who told me that God only gave me what I could handle, I'm sure you know they they it it all came from a place of wanting to to help so i shouldn't be critical but i did want to throw them across the room yeah and that's what we're saying it's not right or wrong necessarily cuz those people who not necessarily say the right things they're coming from a good place yeah. we hope just like gabby was like nobody's saying things to hurt you at right. that time that's the not what they're trying to do it's just awkward for so many people. And I loved her point too about comfortable silence. So no matter why you're grieving or what type of grieving process you have, I think being able to just be comfortable with someone and also sometimes treat the person who is grieving like they're a normal person Mm -hmm. goes a long way. Let's switch gears and answer some questions. Yes. 
Our first question is from Emily. She writes, I have two HSAs, one where I contribute post-tax dollars as it was established when my employer did not offer pre-tax contributions and now one this year with pre-tax. Can I keep contributing to both? Also, how do I make sure that they're set up for a family since the contribution limits are different for individuals versus families? So I think there's a little bit of confusion in the question The money doesn't have to flow through your employer for you to take a tax deduction on the contribution. All money going into an HSA up to the limits, which is about $3,500 a year for a single person and a little under $7,000 a year for families, it's all deductible. And whether or not it was set up with your employer pulling the money out of paycheck contributions or not, it was deductible you should have taken a tax deduction and even if you and if you didn't take the tax deduction you may want to look at whether it pays to file an amended tax return for that year and deduct the expense cuz it is kind of substantial it may get you some money back that said i think having multiples is one of those things that sounds pretty confusing you can only contribute up to the limits each year. And I would just make sure that the account is set up for a family by calling the HSA provider and asking the question. Um, The one time where you really do want to have separate accounts for individuals is even married individuals is when you pass age 55 because Mm -hmm. There are catch-up contributions for people into HSAs as well. You can kick in an extra $1,000 a year, and each individual can do that, which gets you over the family limit, Mm -hmm. but you have to have separate accounts. So then can you eventually roll them all together? Yeah. I think so, and we will look into it. But the other way to consolidate and make things easier is to just spend down the balance in the one that's smaller and then close that one and just deal with the other. Great. And we'll do one from Lisa. She writes, Hi, I'm 43 years old with two children and have had quite a year that included a divorce. I have many money questions, but we'll focus today's questions about retirement. As a K-12 educator, I'm contributing 7% to my state's teacher retirement fund. I also have 45000 in a Roth IRA, 38000 in a 403B, and as part of our divorce agreement, received 123000 from my former spouse's retirement via a key... Quadro. A Q-D-R-O. That. 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 That is that we say quadro. quadro. It's a qualified domestic relations order. Ah, okay. Well, 123000 from that. I'm wondering if it would be better to house all three of our other accounts with the same company as they currently are with three different companies. Would this save on fees? What are my next steps with the funds that have been transferred from the quadro? Yes. I've confirmed that the funds have been transferred and are in a plan account in my name. I truly look forward to each and every podcast as they fill me with confidence as I step into this next chapter in life. Oh, well, that's really nice it's of really you nice to Lisa. say. And um, yeah, absolutely, Lisa. I mean, I was actually thinking, God, yes. <laughs> roll it, Lisa. Roll it all together. <laughs> Get it on one screen, Lisa, so that you can just type in one login and, and see everything in the same page. The money that's in the quadro 
you should be able to roll into an IRA at the same place. I mean, the purpose of a quadro, and for anybody who's getting divorced, this is really important, is to maintain the tax advantages in the retirement plan. So it's it's basically saying you can split the retirement account without pulling the money out, paying the taxes, paying the penalties, which you definitely do not want to do. So that was a smart move on your part. But yeah, I would I would absolutely look at putting it all in one place. And if you want to put it in one home with a financial advisor, the way that a lot of advisors who charge a percentage of assets under management work is that as you give them more money under management, the percentage that they charge you goes down. And so by having it all in one place, you may actually be putting yourself at an advantage. Wow, fantastic. Keep us posted, Lisa. And we'll do one more from Pam. We have three kids in college, a freshman, sophomore, and senior. I'm concerned that we have not properly prepared them to handle money matters. Lots of anxiety surrounds our conversations. Can you recommend a program or plan that would help us guide them better? I recommend... I don't have a program necessarily for you, but I would recommend a family program of sorts. You've got a freshman, you've got a sophomore, you've got a senior. So they all are at the place of having to manage money for a month at a time, a semester at a time, whatever, however you're chunking it out. What you want them to do is to stretch that period of time out before they graduate from college so that they can take whatever salary they're going to earn and manage that. The whole goal is to help them figure out money's a limited resource. This is how much we have. These are the things we need it to cover. This is what's left over, and we want to save something too. So what I did with my kids, what I have done with my kids during college is during their summer vacations when they are earning money, I pull it in. I take it. Um, <laughs> that sounds awful. I take their I money. I wish everyone can see her face, too. She got really excited. She's like, I take it. I just take it. I take it, and I don't give it back. No, I take it, and then I parcel it back out during the school year because the purpose of this money is for them to pay for their incidentals during the school year. But if they had access to it during the summer, mm-hmm. it would not be be there for the school year. And so I take it, I keep it, and then I give it back to them, essentially. And freshman, sophomore year, I might give it back to them week by week. By the time we're junior year, maybe it's every two weeks or every month. And hopefully by the time it's senior year, they can actually manage the sum themselves and even keep their hands off it during the summer months, although you're going to want to keep an eye on that. And the last thing is, once your senior gets a job offer and gets a salary and gets an apartment or figures out where they're going to live and what their other expenses look like, sit down and do budgeting 101. Sit down with them and say, this is how much you're going to likely spend on this. This is what it's going to cost for food. You know, go through all the different categories and help them look at it in a way that they can figure out when they're spending too much or too little on individual things. So when I did this with my son, we got really granular about, okay, do you think you're going to be eating lunch out every single day? Well, how much do you think lunch is going to cost? Well, if you spend 
$12 a day for lunch rather than $8 a day for lunch. That's an extra X number of dollars a month, and that you don't have. So you got to keep the lunches under $8 or $6 or whatever it turns out to be. Those sort of metrics, those arbitrary-sounding rules really, really help. I wish I would have done that. <laughs> As I'm thinking this through. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I learned the hard way. But um, no, I think that's a brilliant way to go about it. And I'm trying to think if I have anything else to offer yeah. from when I was learning it. But my mom did something similar to this. Or like I was an authorized user on her credit card. But she was like a hawk with it when I was in college. And she taught me to be a super saver from early on and um, – I'm trying to think of anything else. No, but. the debit card and the credit card are a really good point. Yeah. Before your kids come out of school, if they are not authorized users on your credit card, you may want to make them one mm-hmm. so that they can start to build their own credit histories. Yeah. And then you can roll them off of your cards and into a card of their own once they get a job. And one more thing I think that'll help with credit scores in mind, in addition to maybe that authorized user if the card reports, my mom put me my name on one of the electric bills for my apartment in college. And then she also had me manage that bill, which was a good lesson for me too of like accountability of like in addition to rent, having the bill. And that also helped my credit score, I think, or gave me a credit score. Fantastic. Those those are my additions. Go Dottie. Go Dottie. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Jean. Thank you for writing in, everybody. In this week's Thrive, we're talking about protecting the stay-at-home spouse. Many couples and all new parents will at some point have to figure out the childcare puzzle. If it comes down to a decision of one spouse or the other staying home, even for a short period of time, economics often figures into this equation. We start asking, who brings in more? Who brings in less? Who has health benefits? However, as the Wall Street Journal recently reported, this calculation can determine the short-term benefits but not the long-term ones, because the spouse who stops working, particularly if it's for a longer period of time, is often skipping those years where their salary will experience the most growth and consequentially giving up his or her top salary potential. That is why it's so important to plan and protect the stay-at-home spouse. The question is, how do you do that? Well, whether you are the earning spouse or the non-earning spouse, there are a few maneuvers that can help. Top of my list, contribute to a spousal IRA. The family as a whole loses out on both current tax benefits and the ability to grow the money tax-deferred if only one of you is contributing to a retirement account. Roth or traditional IRAs both work for this purpose, so just pick the one that's right for you. There's also something which a lot of people roll their eyes at called a post-nup or a post-nuptial agreement. And this is just a written agreement, it is legal, that pledges money from the earner to the non-earner savings account or financial support in other forms like money set aside for an advanced degree or to invest in a side hustle. You may not feel like you need this, but documents like these can be helpful in outlining how household expenses will be covered. And another benefit of having that side business or even a part-time job is that it can keep you eligible for Social Security disability insurance, which is a big deal. You only need to make about $5,000 a year to stay qualified. 
Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Rebecca and Gabby for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We like to hear what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with career coach Liz Bentley, and we'll talk soon.